to call in. So I just finished writing this article in Jacobin uh, that I don't believe they've put it up yet. It might not come out until Monday. And then just, yeah, it's, it's not up yet. So um, I'd be surprised if it wasn't up on Monday, but I'm not 100% sure about their production schedule right now. So I just did this article for, for Jacobin about Brett Favre. Uh, and in particular, if people aren't familiar with this, um, with this big scandal involving uh, Mississippi welfare funds and how he and 37 other people have been accused of breaking the law in uh, the way that they sort of misused welfare funds in Mississippi. And on one level, it's like, okay, this is a story about a celebrity, right, an athlete uh, who's engaged in wrongdoing which is normally not the kind of thing that I really give that much of a shit about. But I think this one's pretty interesting because of what it says about the history of the welfare system in the U.S. and uh, right-wing attacks on it, uh, by which I very much include attacks by the right-wing of the Democratic Party, by politicians like William Jefferson Clinton, who we will get to in a big way because it turns out that Clinton's welfare reform is basically what made uh, Favre's abuse of Mississippi's welfare system possible in the first place, which is a weird connection. So uh, some of what happened here goes back to uh, 2017. So I start out you know, the article by, by noting that in uh, 2016 is when Favre uh, was uh, inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Um, after, you know, which comes after a long career. Uh, he retired, I believe, in 2010. But, you know, he played for a few different teams, but by far the biggest chunk, like almost all of it, uh, was the Green Bay Packers. And uh, in, you know, and this is a career full of, of acclaim and positive media attention, which makes it kind of fun to note that in 2017, as we now know, because this lawsuit that's going on right now, he sent a um, a text message uh, to um, somebody named Nancy New, uh, who worked for the Mississippi Community Education Center, which is a nonprofit uh, getting uh, getting funds for Mississippi's welfare system. Uh, where he says in this text message, "If you were to pay me, is there any way the media can find out where it came from and how much?" And then she assures him, "No, no, no. We've never had that information exposed." about anybody that we've paid. So I thought, hmm, what is it that Brett Favre, who the media loves, uh, why uh, why is it that in 2017, you might ask, he's concerned that the media not know about something he's doing for, you know, this all sounds very benevolent, right? It's, it's uh, the Community Education Center. It has something to do with welfare. So you think, all right, he must be helping poor people in some way. Wouldn't he want the media to find out about this? Well, not so much. So, um, what, uh, what, what is it that he wanted to keep private? Well, what he wanted to keep private was that millions of dollars of Mississippi uh, welfare money, so uh, Mississippi's, you know, this is administered by the states, which is part of the issue, uh, so, but it's a federal program ultimately, is the uh, TANF, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, which is uh, what replaced uh, the old AFDC. Um, so uh, assistance for families with dependent children, which was a new deal program 
uh, replaced by TAMF uh, by Bill Clinton in 1996. So millions of dollars of this Mississippi welfare money was going, uh, some of it, over a million of it, was going to Favre personally, uh, like literally into his own bank account. And millions more was going to something he lobbied very hard for, which was a um which was a new um which was a new volleyball um uh, center. So um you know, I guess a new volleyball stadium at uh Southern Miss, which is the University of Southern Mississippi, which A is where Favre himself went to college, right? It's his alma mater. So that's part of how he's lobbying for this. Uh, and B, his own daughter played volleyball there. Think what on earth is Mississippi welfare money doing going towards a volleyball stadium? And how is it that more than a billion dollars of this can go to Brett Favre personally? Now, uh, On the most obvious level, it's absolutely grotesque to think that a million dollars of welfare money is going to uh, this dude who made, uh, according to one article that I looked at, $140 million over the course of his career as a quarterback. Uh, And that's just what he was directly paid. That doesn't count all the millions in endorsements. So, you know, to put it mildly, he did not need the money. Um... But there's also a more int- a couple of more interesting things you could say structurally and about what all this tells us about the history of the extremely um, miserly welfare state, even at its height, that we've ever had in the United States. So, you know, one of the first things I thought about when I was looking at this story was... Um, Ronald Reagan, because when Reagan was running for president, well, depending how you count it, either the first or the second time in 1976, uh, he spent a lot of time talking about welfare queens, uh, helps popularize this concept of the the welfare queen. Uh, I say depending on how you count it the first or the second time, because uh, Reagan sort of ran for president in uh, 1968. Uh, in 1964, he was, you know, campaigned very hard for Barry Goldwater, but I think he may have still officially been a Democrat for Goldwater at that point. But 1968, he was unambiguously Republican. Um, so, you know, 1964, though, he's already given his, um, like, just totally hysterical, unhinged time for choosing speech on behalf of Goldwater, where he talks about how you know, if uh, if LBJ is elected, we're going to have totalitarian communism. I mean, that's really not much of an exaggeration of the speech. Maybe just a little bit, but not much. Uh, but by 68, he's a Republican, and uh, he doesn't exactly run for president in the sense of, like, entering any primaries. But this is also before primaries were that big a deal. Um, that only um, – that's a relatively recent shift historically. Uh, and in 68, he did let his name be put on the ballot at the convention um, as one of the possible nominees. And, you know, he never came close to getting it. But, um, you know, he was, um, you know, people who knew who Richard Nixon was not right wing enough for. Some of them did vote for, uh, you know, convention delegates who had that view. Some of them did vote for uh, 
Reagan at the 68 convention. But he runs for president for real in 76, unsuccessfully as a primary challenge against Gerald Ford. Um, in fact, if you read Rick Perlstein's books, um, see that you know, the Ford people were pretty outraged that you know after having um, lost to Ford, you know, he challenges him from the right in uh, in seventy six, and helps push Ford, you know, further to the right, and then um, and then Reagan basically sits out the uh, seventy six general election. I mean, he technically endorses Ford, but you know, he um, it's not like Bernie Sanders losing to Hillary and then like barnstorming the country campaigning for her. Uh, Reagan like does the barest possible minimum. He basically has no interest in ensuring that Ford wins the uh, 76 election. And then, um, and then of course he runs for president successfully in 1980, but going back to 76, um, he has, uh, he has this famous, um, this famous riff about welfare Queens from, um, uh, from a, a speech that, you know, the quote I'm about to read comes from, uh, so I'm looking at the, uh, this old New York Times article from 1976. Um, so here's how the Times article starts. Few people realize it, but Linda Taylor, a 47-year-old Chicago welfare recipient, has become a major campaign issue in the New Hampshire Republican presidential primary. Former Governor Ronald Reagan has referred to her at nearly every stop, using her as part of his Citizens Press Conference format. There's a woman in Chicago, the Republican candidate said recently to an audience in Guilford, New Hampshire, during his free-swinging attacks on welfare abuses. She has 80 names, 30 addresses, 12 Social Security cards, and has collected veterans' benefits on four non-existent deceased husbands. He added, and she's collected Social Security on her cards. Uh, she's got Medicaid, um, getting food stamps, and she's collected welfare under each of her names. Her tax-free cash income alone is over one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So this is uh, this is what Reagan's claiming in '76 when he's painting this lurid picture of of welfare queens living high off the hog of government assistance. Now. Um, most of this is nonsense. Again, he Reagan doesn't name her, but he does seem to be talking about Taylor. People the New York Times uh, talked to uh, in the um, in Illinois said uh, he did seem to be basing this on local press accounts uh, of Taylor's case. And initially, it does seem like there was a point when the authorities were going to charge with much more. But then, as these things often go, you know, there are legal complexities. And you narrow down what you can actually prove or, you know, just, you know, prosecutors might have gotten initially excited. Also, maybe some of the press accounts at the time were just, you know, sensationalist and inaccurate. I'm not totally sure about that part. But at any rate, the New York Times article fact checks Reagan and notes that this woman is actually being charged with a whole lot less than uh, Reagan is saying at the time. Uh, in fact, um, you know, while that the case was ongoing as of the time that uh, the New York Times article that I'm looking at came out, uh, the state of Illinois was not accusing her of having 80 aliases. It was accusing her of having four aliases. And it wasn't accusing her of defrauding the state uh, welfare system in Illinois of over $150,000. It was accusing her of defrauding them of about $3,000. So, you know, a lot less exciting than it sounds. 
but few people at the time noted that uh, noticed that Reagan's anecdote had been debunked. Anti-welfare rhetoric continued to be a huge part of Reagan's pitch when he ran for president again in 1980. But um, it's important to note that it is true that during his eight years in office, he oversaw some pretty brutal cuts to the funding levels of various social services. But the the basic framework of the welfare system that had been put in place uh, during the New Deal actually did survive the Reagan presidency and the first Bush presidency, George H.W. Bush. It wasn't undone until a Democrat, Bill Clinton, came into office in the 1990s. Uh, to mix in uh, just a little bit of personal anecdote here, when I was, uh, would have been 12 years old, I actually went to see Bill Clinton speaking at um, Michigan State University. I grew up in East Lansing, so, um, you know, you could just walk from my high school over to the university campus. And uh, like a lot of kids, I was, uh, you know, my, my parents took me out of school to go see Clinton. Um at uh, speak on the lawn outside of uh, Beaumont Tower at uh, Michigan State. And I remember being really excited about it. And, um, you know, whatever, I was 12. I don't know how much I really understood about any of this stuff. But I remember at the time thinking, well, look, you know, all these liberals are, are really excited about him, right? He must be, you know, he must be a super liberal. And then I kind of started looking at um, – I actually bought a copy. Uh, this is so embarrassing, but I actually bought a copy of the campaign book that Bill Clinton and Al Gore, his vice presidential writing mate, put out in 1992. It was called Putting People First. Um, so I actually owned a physical copy of that book, and I read enough of it to realize this, like, oh, this doesn't actually sound like a super liberal. Um, he talked in there about how he'd supported the first Gulf War. Um, and you know was was a was a hawk about the cold war um and he talked about how he wanted to end that federal welfare system in fact one of his slogans in that 92 campaign this appears in these words in that book was about how he and gore once they get into office were going to and i quote end welfare as we know it um so Clinton's language, and he continues to use this long after leaving office. It's in his uh, his memoir, for example. If you look at that, is um, he said he was something called a new Democrat. Clinton was one of the founders of something called the Democratic Leadership Council, which uh, existed to to steer the Democratic Party to the right. And the way he defined being a new Democrat, these are his words, as he said he was socially progressive and fiscally conservative. So, for example, he wanted to end welfare as we know it. Now, the socially progressive part was more than a little dubious. Um, he instituted a policy in the military called Don't Ask, Don't Tell, uh, which, um, you know, before being gay in the military had been strictly not allowed and now uh, basically admitted that you were gay uh, was, uh, was what wasn't allowed. Uh, so, you know, you were technically allowed now to be gay. You just weren't allowed to admit it. And this actually led to more gay people being drummed out of the military under Don't Ask, Don't Tell than, uh, than had been previously. In 1996, he signed uh, something called the Defense of Marriage Act, which um, 
allowed states to refuse to recognize same-sex uh, marriages uh, from other states, which would have otherwise been, you know, the Constitution's full faith and credit clause would have made them do that. Um, and he, you know, he expressed some unhappiness about it, but he did sign it. Uh, and he, uh, he continued, as I recall, uh, to, um, you know, advise John Kerry in 2004 to oppose, uh, to oppose gay marriage. Uh, and say so civil unions are fine, but, you know, gay people, you know, we, we should draw the line at gay marriage. We don't, what people think we're crazy liberals. So, um, I mean, yeah, you can look at, um, you know, you can look at, uh, I mean, in fact, you know, whatever, like, you know, the history of like the big establishment Dems on this sucks um, and is also pretty striking uh, because if you think about all the accusations against sort of Bernie-ish leftists for being, you know, class reductionists um, or, um, you know, or, uh, you know, whatever Bernie bros is, is being, you know, sort of uninterested in anything but economic issues and, you know, being like privileged white male people or whatever, and then, you know, you actually compare like the Bernie Sanders record on this stuff to the to uh, the Clinton or Obama or Hillary Clinton record on it. Like none of those people, um, yeah, as late as like 2008, none of those people even supported gay marriage. Whereas um, Bernie Sanders, as far as I know, never indicated any opposition to it. I think once he said that tactically it's not where he would start, but um, in fact he was so far ahead of the curve on that stuff that he was. You know, he kind of made Ver Burl uh, Burlington, Vermont, uh, a mecca for trans people in the 1980s. Uh, so uh, when nobody was talking about that, but I digress. So uh, Clinton's claim that he was uh, socially liberal and fiscally, socially progressive and fiscally conservative, that was his phrase, uh, didn't want to use that L word, liberal, uh, you know, was uh, pretty dubious on the first part, but pretty solid on the second part. Um he spent his eight years in office ramming through uh, free trade agreements like NAFTA, which was originally a Ronald Reagan idea. Um, Reagan had been talking in the early 80s about a North American accord, which the way he described it sounds a lot like NAFTA. Um, and uh, so, yeah, he Clinton carried out Reagan's dream on that. Um, you know, NAFTA, GATT, WTO, uh, deregulated the shit out of the banking industry, most infamously repealing Glass-Steagall, um, thus uh, allowing banks to grow to be too big to fail. Uh, and um, and then uh, he also carried out that promise about ending welfare as we know it. So what was welfare as we know it, and how is that different from what Big Dog instituted in its place in 1996 when he signed the welfare reform bill? Well, welfare as we knew it meant, stay with me here, that welfare money was directly given by the government to poor people. That was welfare as we knew it. Welfare as we now know it, post-1996, when Bill Clinton signs welfare reform, replaces uh, aid to families with dependent children. Uh, I think I said assistance earlier. It's aid. Aid to families with dependent children with uh, TANF, temporary assistance for needy families. It's way more restrictive. Um, it's like has, you know, there was all kinds of brutal work requirements that, that got put in it, which meant that people ended up um, 
oftentimes uh, being, uh, uh, you know, forced, you know, at sort of risk of, of losing benefits to, to work some really dangerous jobs with no protection whatsoever. A lot of people just disappeared from the roles. Um, if you read Christopher Hitchens um, for, uh, I think, my favorite Christopher Hitchens book uh, from 1999, uh, No One Left to Lie to, The Triangulations of William Jefferson Clinton, or uh, depending on which edition you're looking at, No One Left to Lie to, The Values of the Worst Family, there is this really uh, grim passage in there about what uh, that um, what ended welfare as we know it uh, looked like in in practice and um, in the uh, in the real world. When um, so here's here. Let me get you the uh, the line. Um, so um, it's a long quote, but I think it's worth. Um, you know, it's worth reading out the whole thing, um, which and thinking about it when, you know, you look at these quotes from like uh, Hillary Clinton, who, uh, you know, who says, uh, talk, who talked about how because of her husband's welfare reform, quote, millions of families have made the transition from welfare to dependency to dignity. So in my book about Hitchens, I quote this paragraph from uh, from uh, No One Left to Lie To, where he's talking about Tyson Foods. Uh, which, by the way, he he notes um, that uh, that Tyson was a big contributor to all of Bill Clinton's political campaigns. So, quote, Tyson Foods uses the direct job placement scheme as its taxpayer-funded recruiting sergeant. The first shock of recognition experienced by those who are supposed to be grateful for their dose of non-alienated, dignified labor is the polar job. This involves gutting birds later to provide tasteless nourishment at tables the badly off, at a rapid rate, the fingernails of the inexperienced are likely to be the first to go, dissolved in bacteria and chicken fat. Of Missouri's 103,000 poultry workers, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, almost one-third endured an injury or an illness in 1995 alone. Supplied by the state with a fearful, docile labor force, the workhouse masters are relatively untroubled by unions or by backtalk from the staff. Those who have been trimmed from the welfare rolls have often done more, have often done no more than disappear into a twilight zone of casual employment, uninsured illness, intermittent education for their children, and unsafe or temporary accommodation. Only thus, by their disappearances from society, can they be counted as a success story by ambitious governors and used in order to qualify tight-fisted states for caseload reduction credits from the federal government. The women among them, not infrequently pressed for sexual favors as the price of the ticket, can be asked at random about the number of toothbrushes found in the trailer and are required by law to name their overnight guest or the father of the child if asked. Failure or refusal to name the father can lead to termination of benefits, or even better word, entitlements. We were once told by the bought and paid for, uh, bought and sold Oval Office itself that even presidents are entitled to privacy. It seems now that only presidents and their wealthy backers can claim this entitlement. Uh, yeah, see, in the chat, uh, Flyover Man says Hitchens catered the Clintons before it was cool, which is very true. Um, you know, it, it's really hard for people now, like lefties now, uh, to remember how bad the 90s were or how different they were, uh, that there really wasn't, you know, such a thing as like a left media 
in um, in the sense that it exists now, right? There was nothing like Jacobin in the '90s. There's nothing like current affairs in the '90s. There was there was no there was no equivalent to you know certainly the YouTube ecosystem of of lefty stuff. Um, so somebody like like Hitchens, you know, who was at the time a, a socialist, uh, there was no socialist media for him to work for that didn't exist. Right? If uh, if Jacobin had existed in you know nineteen the beginning of the eighties when when Hitchens came over to the U.S. from the U.K. Uh, maybe he would have been a Jacobin staff writer, but uh, instead, you know, he went to the work at the Nation, which is the closest thing because it ex- you know the Nation has tended historically to exist in a sort of gray area between liberalism and leftism. But in the nineties, even at the Nation, where Hitchens worked, hating the Clintons as much as he did really put you at odds. You know, things have gotten better, but you know, in the nineties, um, I've written some really nasty stuff about the Clintons for the Nation. Lots of other people have too, but it, you know, and you know, to be fair, they let Hitchens do it. But you know, in the nineties, hating Clinton as much as you as as Hitch did really put you at odds with uh, a lot of people in that world, right? A lot of the sort of liberals who cluster around magazines like the Nation, um, you know, really kind of, you know, they might have said, "Oh, look, they're not left wing enough for me," whatever. But you know, in practice, they were pretty uh, defensive about the Clintons because you know, their sort of experience of day-to-day politics was that, you know, people like, uh, you know, your Newt Gingrich's and Rush Limbaugh spent all day, every day attacking the Clintons. So, you know, if you're just sort of responding to the news cycle, you know, uh, if you're to the left of that, your your impulse is to rally around the Clintons and defend them. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly, Silver. Uh, all right, so... In um, so I haven't even gotten yet to the most important change in the welfare system in the, the 1996 that Clinton oversaw, because you know we've been talking about the way in which um, you know we've been talking about how you know direct benefits, right? Like where cases where uh, money was directly or indirectly, at least, uh, still being given to poor people, like it had been before '96, um, had become a lot more tight-fisted. But the most important change between AFDC and TANF, um, welfare as we knew it in Clinton's phrase, versus welfare as we have known it since 1996, is that the Instead of all of the money going from this program with, you know, some aspects of it administered by the state, whatever, but like all the money going towards poor people, that's the old system, which was miserly means tested, had a million problems. There are so many better ways to do it, Uh, but at least money was directly being given to poor people. Uh, Instead of that, under the Clintonified version of the welfare system, money was given as block grants to the state. So instead of here's the AFDC money, which is going to directly go to poor, towards poor people in Mississippi, for example, by the way, Mississippi is the poorest state in the union. Now, Mississippi, for example, the rest of the states get a block grant 
So instead of having to give the money directly to poor people, now they've got this block grant and they can decide for themselves, right? The state of Mississippi, for example, can decide for itself what the best way is to use this money to, uh, to help alleviate poverty in Mississippi. And so especially in red states, but not only red states, um, a lot of this money and these welfare block grants ends up not going not making its way to poor people at all because uh, there's, uh, you know, one of the articles that I quote in the thing that I have forthcoming to Jacobin um, has uh, says, okay, so here's, here's the line, including the part that I'm quoting says, sometimes they still give the money to uh, poor families, but they have wide latitude to spend it on a variety of quote, Programs viewed as promoting work, reducing out of wedlock pregnancies, and encouraging two parent families. Let that sink in. So now, when Mississippi gets its block grant of um, welfare money, they don't have to spend it all on actual cash payments to poor people. They don't even have to spend it all on giving it to people who will then directly aid poor people in some way. Um, they could spend it on lecturing poor people on out-of-wedlock pregnancies, promoting two-parent families and the value of hard work. Because if you have this grotesque, Dickensian, you know, culturalist understanding of the sources of poverty, which many right-wingers, and I'm very much including New Democrats as right-wingers, have... They say, oh, well, what's the best way to alleviate poverty? Well, in our judgment as a state, the best way to alleviate poverty is to scold people about having babies out of wedlock and to preach the value of two-parent families and hard work. So a lot of right-wingers, by the way, uh, Matt Brunick has done great work on this, uh, like to talk about something called the success sequence, which is says, well, look, they're all, there's the statistical correlation between... Um, graduating, you know, following these steps in the success sequence, which are like graduating from high school and uh, waiting till later in life to get married and having a job and, you know, and to start having kids, you know, not have kids until you're married and start having a job and like, and, uh, and, and be, and, you know, and, and get a job. And this, these traditional, socially traditionalist steps are then correlated with not being so poor, uh, being above a you know very low, right? Like, not necessarily being not poor in the common sense sense, but at least being above a poverty line that's set very low. And Brunick has done great work debunking this and being like, look, this is all bullshit. Um, the only thing, like, obviously you're going to, um, look, you'll have more disposable income if you just never have kids. <laughs> Uh, but really, the only thing that's doing any work is having a job. Yeah, no shit. People who have jobs are less poor than people who don't have jobs. The rest of that stuff is just, uh, it's its like textbook how to lie with statistics. It's just sort of art, artificially attached to it, even though it doesn't do any independent work in uh, getting, getting you the correlation with not being in poverty. But um, people have this, social pseudoscience view about poverty that, oh, the problem is that people have bad values and they're, they're not getting married and all this stuff like that. Um, in fact, 
look, uh, <laughs> you know, if you if you really want to have disposable income, uh, don't get married and don't have kids is <laughs> actually pretty good advice. But um, regardless, like, so what that means is that this takes us back to that community education center in Mississippi that was assuring Favre if they paid him, nobody would ever, would ever find out about it. So the reason, um, so there are two elements, there are two primary elements of Favre's involvement in this Mississippi welfare scandal. One is he was paid about $1.1 million uh, to give motivational speeches, uh, which again, you could lecture people on the value of hard work and not having children out of wedlock and all that. And that's something welfare money could now be spent on post-1996. Welfare as we now know it. Uh, and two, he successfully lobbied using the political influence of the former Republican governor of Mississippi, Phil Bryant, um, who was in on all those text messages, a bunch of well, like millions of welfare money, dollars of welfare money to, uh, to be spent on this volleyball stadium uh, at his alma mater where his daughter played volleyball. And he and 37 other people who, you know, were paid or lobbied to have you know, money paid to various pet projects for Mississippi welfare funds are now being sued by the Mississippi Department of Human Services to try to get the money back. Uh, Favre has paid the uh, 1.1 million that he was paid for his motivational speeches back, but not um, a few hundred thousand dollars of interest, which despite having made $140 million, not counting endorsements over the course of his career, he's still drawing the line and paying the interest uh, that's being demanded by the, uh, the state, uh, the state um, auditor. But what, what I say in the article is, is this, this is kind of the bottom line for me. Um, the reason in this case that Favre, uh, just sticking with the 1.1 million he was being paid personally, the reason that that was illegal is that he didn't give the speeches. Right? And the DHS says he never intended to give the speeches. Okay. But what if he had? Would that make it okay to put $1.1 million of welfare money into the pockets of an already obscenely wealthy athlete. And, you know, it's very not obvious <laughs> what, uh, what the volleyball stadium is supposed to have to do with promoting hard work and the value of two parent families and all that shit. But, you know, I'm sure people have come up with more creative connections than that while they're writing grant proposals. What, what really interests me here is not the extent to which Favre and, uh, the 37 other people named in this lawsuit went beyond the limits of the law. What really interests me is the way that having welfare money go to block grants to states instead of being directly given to poor people allowed this in the first place. In other words, look, the fact that he was defrauding them because he didn't give the speeches is not the interesting part. The interesting part is that Bill Clinton's welfare reform essentially created this system of legalized theft from poor people where you could legally spend $1.1 million of welfare money on paying a rich athlete to give moral lectures to poor people, which moral lectures, needless to say, are going to do jack shit to put food on anybody's table or help them make rent.
That's obscene. And that's the point. Talking about all that tomorrow. But uh, we do have a call, so let me take that before we go. Jonathan, what's on your mind? And just as a reminder, you got to unmute yourself, so you should see a little... Yeah, here we go. Yes. Yeah, I just put it in the chat how Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds redirected all the money that came into the state. I saw three separate news items. It's like, oh, all the all the PayPal, pay, not PayPal, paycheck protection, the PPP loans mm-hmm. she redirected to her staff, the housing relief she redirected to her donors, and then the COVID relief she redirected to her donors. So, like, using the state as the distribution apparatus is just one more barrier to people. It's it's a it's actually a a private entity it's like if your state house is beholden to private entities and ethanol and high fructose corn syrup and whatever it is that you know the iowa state house is beholden to that they want to keep hemp illegal and all these things because they don't want to compete got got to get those corn subsidies in there and that's become they don't get anything we have a huge problem with depopulation we got no Mm -hmm. workers it's been it's because she won't uh, like allow people to live there they're just pushing them out and the whole thing is ridiculous. So yeah, that's all. Yeah, no, I I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the like PPP loans were such a weird way of you know. Well, I, I mean, I, I I think I agree with you about the analogy with the the welfare um, block grants because it's you know the name is the program is the Paycheck Protection Program, um, which you know, would even make when they fit. made it to the companies, even when it made it to the companies, they, they would just not hire the people back. They fired them all and kept the difference. And that's when they did get paid those people who fire people. But she's just like paying it to her donors who doesn't even hire anybody. They just collect subsidized pri- prices for ethanol. Yeah. And, and like you could have you could have done a version of the PPP that was where you where the government literally paid the paychecks of individual workers, right? There's absolutely no reason they couldn't have done it that way. Um, that uh, you just have uh, that, uh, that you know, whatever you're getting paid, uh, you know, the uh, the government will just, uh, you know, will like directly, I mean, even if you were going to do as a payment to the company, even if that was how it was going to work, right? You, know, you could say like literally um, you're going to get, the exact salary of these workers uh, for as long as you keep them on, on payroll. Uh, and if you fire any of them, then you are now losing, you know, the, the part that's the salary. They're just that adding worker, their but... profits, even the people that did well because of the pandemic, there were types of businesses that there were recession proof businesses. And there were people that benefited from people locked in, you know, that's why Peloton and Netflix stock mm-hmm. spiked for a while. Cause it's like, Oh, this is stay at home stuff, but they still got the difference. It's like, and it was just to pad their profits. It wasn't paid to the workers. I mean, long term, that would have problems too. But yeah, in the short term, that would have been a better way to do it. Just like, yeah, just pay them. Just pay the workers directly. Which is crazy. Yeah, right. I mean, my favorite example of this, of course, is that the uh, the Ayn Rand Institute <laughs> applied for uh, applied for a PPP loan, um, which, man, I, I, I'm very skeptical that there's anything that you do with the Ayn Rand Institute that you can't do over Zoom. Yeah, I had a friend who, uh, he runs, a, he has a coffee shop that he works at and, and he's in downtown Dubuque, Iowa, and uh, he applied for that and got rejected. But the guy who got it instead used it to open up a new Sonic on the highway. <laughs> like it was basically, I'm going to open another location on another franchise. It wasn't, you know, and then to pay those people $10 an hour. 
you know? Yeah. It's just really just, and they get, he necessarily the John the Chamber of Commerce, so he got priority because he, he rubs shoulders with all the right people. Dubuque is one of the most gangster ass, sort of financially incestuous towns in all of Iowa, and that's saying something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you could also, like, look, if you, uh, you know, there is also the wacky idea of just of just taking uh, failing businesses into uh, into public ownership, so you could you know keep people on payroll that way without having to go through third parties. But yeah, I mean, like the the local coffee shop is exactly the example, like the kind of thing that PPP was marketed as doing, right? There's like, oh, this is just like some regular guy who's like trying to keep his little coffee shop afloat. It's like something that legitimately you can't really do. You know, lockdown. Yeah, when the, uh, like when the price of eggs went up, like he's not making money. You know, he's just he's getting paid. He pays himself like less than minimum wage when he keeps the difference from what, you know, because of the location is bad and stuff like that. He could have hired somebody with the PPP loan, even if it's like a reason low interest loan. Even he does have to pay it back. Yeah. He could have used that. Yeah, but like yeah, eggs tripled in like a year. <laughs> That's a big deal to him. He makes a lot of omelets. Sure. You know? No, that yeah makes sense. Um, yeah, no, that's that is uh, yeah, that's pretty outrageous. Um, yeah, thank you, uh, thank you, John. Yeah, yeah, thanks for doing your show. I'll subscribe yeah. to your YouTube. I, I still haven't, but I will. I'm going to go do it right now. <laughs> Outstanding. Um, all right, we're uh, we're going to uh, leave it there for today. I think, like I said, we'll be back tomorrow, probably about the same time. I haven't quite figured that out yet, but I will. I'll post that on Twitter as soon as I know when we're going to do it, but uh, we're going to uh, cut it there for today. Left is better.